This documentary is not suitable for younger ears and we caution anyone who has lost someone to suicide that they may find this documentary unsettling. If you are affected by any issues raised throughout this documentary, please contact The Samaritans on 116123 or samaritans.org. All details of where, when and who have been removed from this story. My own mobile phone wasn't working. So even though this terrible accident happened in the morning, it was that evening before they told me. Please stand back behind the yellow line. Train now approaching. Every Monday morning, I'm at the train station. I walk up and I go there. This Monday morning was a bit different because the train was delayed. My daughter had decided to go into school early. I was considering going with her, but I started emptying the dishwasher and so on, so I just let that time go. She left, and then I decided to go for the normal train. It's only a 10-minute walk to the train station, so and it's sort of a good bit of exercise because it's up and down the hill. So, Yeah, so that morning, went there as normal. Get up, get the kids ready, have something to eat, and then walk to the train station, heading to work. I would have been up about five o'clock in the morning. The first thing you do, you start the engine up. Building up the air pressure, the heat in the lights. So then you check the doors, check the train out, make sure everything is working okay. Then the passenger's gone. And that day I left on time. Okay, this is the layout of the station. There's a car park out front here. In the station building, you go through the turnstiles. Then you can stay in here in the waiting room or go out onto the platform. In the morning, this platform is packed with commuters and secondary school students. In front of you, of course, at the edge of the platform is the yellow line with the words, please stand behind the yellow line. I stand at the letter B on the stand behind the yellow line. That's, that's where I stand every morning. <laughs> that's how much of a creature I have. Like, I'm no different than most of the other people out there. If I stand the letter B, I'm right in front of the door. <laughs> I know it's sad, it's sad, it's sad, but that's commuting life for you. I normally stand with a friend of mine. She happened to be on holidays. It's unusual for me to have been on my own standing on the platform there because, you know, you meet people and you know them and you stand at the same spot. You actually plan your journey in your head before you set off. So, And because you're a driver, you're actually looking out for things that go wrong. You know, things do go wrong. Hmm? 
it's a small community, so you invariably meet a lot of people on the platform that you know, so it's actually not an unpleasant way of spending a morning. A lot of people just use their phones at that time. Some small pockets of people chatting. You see so many different things as you go along. You see certain people one day, maybe at 10 o'clock in the morning, so they're always at that particular spot. So if they're not there the next day, you'd be crying, I wonder where they were today. They'd probably have the day off or, you know. And then people's houses, you get used to people's, you know, at people's houses. So if somebody is building a wall or an extension, you actually become part of that until you... <laughs> until he's finished it. The platform was very packed because obviously people were sheltering from the rain and there was a delay in the train, so you had kind of a mixture of two trains. Normally on the stray section, it'll roll and then you don't have to use it. much power on the engine. Yeah, so that morning, went there as normal, saw my friend at the station with her son. I bumped into a, an ex-colleague of mine, just shooting the breeze, a bit of, bit of a chat, and our train was delayed. So we were, were given off about the, the rail service and whatever else, and as it turns out, uh, we could hear the express train coming. The train always whistles as it comes around the corner. I remember blowing the bell three quarters of a mile away from the station. Because on the other platforms, there'd be so many people going to work, children going to school, and the local train would have been due in about two minutes after my train passed through. I took a seat outside the ticket hall. And then, just for some reason, saw a woman in a green coat. The person had a hood on, so I, at the time I couldn't tell if it was a young, old man, woman. She was behaving in a nervous way, kind of fidgeting or kind of moving about a bit nervously. I remember that in colour. I just see grey and I just see a flash of green. And I heard kind of a guttural scream from somebody kind of a primeval scream. There was that gasp. A guy in front of me just turned around, screamed and said, don't look. Don't look, don't look, don't look. So I had a moment to kind of make sure that I kind of looked away and I actually blocked my ears because I didn't want to hear or see anything. A lot of people did the same thing. But even with that, you kind of look back to see, is, is this what is actually happening? You think you're going to look away, but you actually don't. A girl over to the left of me said, oh my God, oh my God. The guy in front of me put his hand up to his ears and he just screamed no. No, no! It happened in slow motion. 
so I applied brakes on the train. I had time to see her in this green coat before I was able to just cover my eyes and turn. I just remember all the screams and then looking round and seeing my friends, you know, her arms around her son, making sure that he didn't see. Everybody was just gasping for air or, or shouting like, Fuck, oh like everybody reacted in some way. Some people just sat there dazed or stood there dazed. I was sitting on a low seat and I looked up and I just saw people's faces. Some people looked very shocked. Others had their hands up to their mouth. Some people were shouting. Some people were crying. The train glides to a stop. Passengers on the train, generally they wouldn't know about. It took, I'd say, over half a mile for the train to stop. Within that half a mile, I was able to ring the signalman and tell him what was after happening. So even before the train had actually stopped, the emergency service were had been informed and were on their way. I actually was woken up out of my bed with my pager. And that morning in particular, we arrived up and the officer was first here and he grabbed the printout and straight away we knew what we had an idea of what we were going to. Train station traumatic injuries. It was complete bedlam. Screaming, howling, you name it. I just remember dropping my coffee. I think at that stage I just, I just went into shock to the point that I even bumped into somebody yesterday on the train on the way home, asked me who I was. I'd forgotten I'd even spoken to them just after the event. People were screaming and women were crying and I was frozen on the spot. I still was holding my phone in my hand and then I realised I'd better do something. Was I going to ring my wife or was I going to ring 999? I wasn't actually quite sure. And then I had friends on the platform saying, come on, let's go, let's go, nothing you can do. I was frozen. I said, well, no, I felt I needed to assess, I take stock. You know, I was left with a scene in front of me that was, was like, it was, it was just horrible. Some were visibly very, very distressed about what they'd witnessed and were just on a different planet, in a completely different planet. I know of other people who, and I don't know, this is how they were dealing with it. They said, look, I'm going to drive into work now, would you like a lift? So the reactions of people was just, you know, polar opposites, if you like. You're listening to the documentary on one. You may like to know that if you've been affected by issues raised in this programme, you can get helpline information from rte.ie forward slash support. That's rte.ie forward slash support. What I remember about it was it was just the stillness and just all these emotions going through various people and I was looking up so I could see everybody's face and then people just filed out of the train station very quietly nobody asked anybody to move but they just all walked out including myself and I just didn't look as I passed by and when we walked into the 
the hall um, where the ticket machines were. People were sort of standing there a bit aimlessly, looking a bit lost. There were people crying. There were people ratching or trying to throw up. My brother was catching that train as well, but he's down one end, I'm down the other one. He did come and find me, you're crying. He's had the arms around, but you then he's like, well, what do you do next? When something goes wrong, a driver's the person that has to deal with the situation. So he has to be trained to understand where on the track his train is, what the problem was, and he has to be able to communicate that problem to the signalman. So he'll turn the signals on the opposite line to reds so to stop any other train approaching. Now, on the engine itself, we have a thing called a gizmar bar. Just in case you didn't have communication with the signalman through the radio system, you can take a bar off the engine and put it on the opposite track and that will take the electrical code out of the other track. It'll turn the signals on the other track to red so that if a train's approaching, it'll get a red signal and it'll stop. So it doesn't make the situation worse. So that morning I took the bar down, but I slipped on the last run of the ladder. And although I fell, my shoulder was still on the handrail. <laughs> yeah, I was able to put the bar on the track quite easy. My shoulder didn't pain me at the time. It wasn't until later on in the day. After I put the bar on the track, you're waiting for other people to arrive. Like, you're waiting for the police to arrive. You're waiting for Irish Rail supervisors to arrive. They came quite quick. I do remember hearing the big, long blast of the train. It's something you, you, you know, you sort of hear. And then I remember hearing the sirens. So I was thinking, oh, no. And then... The next thing was one of our family came downstairs and said, can I have a lift because all the trains are off? And I went, oh, well, that's it then. So then we were trying to think, where is everybody? Not that I'd be worried that something had happened to them, but that they might have seen something, you know what I mean? Because you don't want that either. We were all out in the front car park. The crowd disperse fairly quickly but again there's another train maybe 15 minutes later so a new group of people started arriving I was getting dropped off for the train so we turned up onto the station road and it was just wrong like there was just people walking away from it for a start and then they all looked completely dazed There wasn't anybody talking to each other. It was really just head down and sad and lonesome. There was a really eerie feeling about it. 50 southbound with delays from the M1 interchange all the way to junction 11 Tala. But it's a busy morning for North... Within two minutes of having dropped him, I heard on the radio that the station had been closed due to a serious incident. Irish rail line is closed at the moment due to an incident. Moving west to Galway, the N84 Headford Road. It was really worrying because you think it might be somebody from your town that you know. It's just, it's, it's really, really sad. All those people walking away, what had they seen? Well, I remember dropping my husband off at the station 
and I was back at the house and I looked at the phone about 10 minutes later. There were four or five missed calls and I rang him back and he said, can you come back immediately? He didn't tell me why. So I drove straight back to the station. I thought maybe he wasn't feeling well. He got into the car. He just looked completely white and I could see lots of other people on phones and walking away from the station and everybody looked a bit shocked. Then he came back to the house and he sat down and he had his hands in his face. I think he just kept getting images and flashes of what he had just seen. And I kept imagining then how horrible that must have been and trying not to think about it. But I actually didn't know what to say to him because it didn't seem like anything I could say would make him feel better. And as we drove out, the local fire brigade were arriving and I was just thinking, oh my God, what, what job they have now. We got up to the train station very quick, just around the corner. The station master had already actually got all the people from the platform ushered out of the station. So they were all stood outside. So that was the first thing that we were greeted with when we got there was just hordes of people outside of the train station looking grey in the face. Some of them just not knowing what was going on. There was even a gentleman getting sick. So you see all of that sort of stuff. You can imagine, right, OK, probably know what we're going into now. And that was it. Helmets on, gloves on, high-vis on, all of our PPE ready to go. Um, because at the end of the day, those people are looking at us kind of going, right, well, these are the professionals. They're here to deal with this now. So, yeah, we walked into the platform and I suppose actually one of the first things we noticed was there was a cup of tea had dropped. So just a full cup of tea that had clearly been dropped right where the impact probably happened. So that person more than likely had witnessed it. We had to wait then for the Gardaí to arrive because while it was, I suppose, almost obvious to a lay person what had happened, it was still being treated as a crime scene. I'm the local guard and the investigating officer. Few of the local people who had seen it had stayed back. I spoke with a few of them before I actually went into the scene. One, I wanted them just to know that I was there and to get a few names. I spoke with the station master who told me exactly what happened. I need to prove it in case, say, somebody accidentally fell off, perhaps been pushed, you never know, with our job. We have to rule all them factors out. That particular station has CCTV live, so we viewed it there and then. So then I'm satisfied. A suicide has occurred. I'd prefer to try and reduce the number of guards that have to see the scene because there's a lot of new guardy that were only out a few days, maybe, or a few weeks. You can let them see it, but you don't need to kind of, as I would do, keep them busy, give them jobs to do, go up to the train driver. I remember being interviewed by the police. Now, they didn't ask me too many questions because they told me they've spoken to people on the platform to see what happened and they're quite happy and they'll, they'll take a statement of me later. After the police were finished interviewing me, our trail supervisors then, they brought me back. And I remember thinking, when I was walking away from the train, well, I can't do this no more. So I remember saying goodbye to the train, and that was that. We walked up as far as the train and the forensics guy took the photographs and after he'd photographed the remains, we had to retrieve them from the tracks. For a fleeting few moments, I was 
angry because I was. I was like, how dare you? Because it was, you know, we were concerned. We were kind of going, is there any children here? You know, even those type of things. Because normally there would be a group of kids who go into town on the train and they could be 12 and 13 year olds. But then that passed within a moment. I kind of realised how horrible it must have been. We could have been reeds blown in the wind as far as she concerned as opposed to a group of people across the platform. We weren't there. We were invisible. I just walked on home. Other people walked on down the street and people just said, are you okay, to each other. There was a whole lot of people not knowing how to deal with it. I went home. My wife was still there. The kids hadn't gone to school, which was not good. So I came in. Luckily, we were kind of an inner door and outer door on the port. So I just called my wife out and said, look, something's really bad after happening. So she brought me into the living room and just make sure the kids got out the door. She got them out the door. I said someone went down the street with no shoes on just to get them out the door. They knew something was up. They're not silly. They're not stupid. They're 12 years of age. They know something was, they knew something was up. So my wife obviously consoled me. She could see I was, I was in complete shock. She says my face was as, white, was as white as that. And then about 12 minutes later, 15 minutes later, my mate ran a corner called in to me to see how we were because I had sent him a text just to check he was okay. We went down the town then just to grab a coffee. I texted one of the guys who was there as well and, and said, um, are you okay? And said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the local coffee shop here. Come join us. So I went over to them and we had a chat about it. We didn't talk too much about it because we were just processing it, I suppose. And people just kind of connected, at least the people connected. They weren't trying to, you know, nobody's trying to be strong for the other person or anything like that. It was just a case of, look, at this is horrible. You know? I actually don't know what we spoke about. I gen I gen that's a genuine answer. I actually don't know what we spoke about. It was comfort in numbers. Just trying to get together to check that we were okay, rather than checking, talking about the event itself. I think it's so surreal. So, so surreal. You know, one of the other guys who happened to be in the, the, the waiting room, his natural reaction at the time it happened to look out. Uh, why did I look out? Why did I look out? You know, we're trying to explain that's a rational thing to do. It's a human human reaction. You're looking out for danger. You're, it, it's nearly like a self-preservation mechanism. He was kind of struggling with that bit. The day carried on like that through to when the kids came home. And I was great. I stayed at home and, and I kind of caught up in a couple of emails and stuff at home. But I didn't take on too much. I rang work. They said, stay where you are. Unfortunately, I did have to go into work. I, I wasn't myself. I shouldn't have gone in, but I had to go in that day. The image is ingrained. What what I saw was ingrained in my brain. It just you're you're seeing it over and over. A video loop. You're seeing it as it happened. By the time we got to work, you know, I was due to go into our weekly office meeting, and you know, I'm there sitting and shaking because I texted one of the other ladies in the office to say, look, this has happened. And then, yeah, so by the time I got in, the shock. But funnily enough, nobody said anything. This woman said, she said, you sure you should be here? I was like, well, what else was I going to do? And then after she said, oh, I didn't want to say anything to you in the meeting in case you got upset. But what you're looking for, because I was sitting there at my desk, thinking I'd imagined it or getting to the point because it was so surreal because nobody said anything. 
So nobody asked how I was, nobody asked what happened. It's like it hadn't actually happened. By lunchtime, I started to get really upset because one of what I'd seen, but the fact that nobody acknowledged it, that was not nice. That really wasn't nice. I was so angry. I was just, like, so angry. Usually finish the job. We'll have a little debrief here in the station, make sure that all of our crew is okay. We'll have a cup of tea in that kitchen and we might not talk about the incident that we've been to at all, but we'll have a laugh and a joke and we'll talk about other things and, you know, what somebody's doing for the next week and who's going on holidays next. And that, for me, is the best way of dealing with some sort of traumatic incidents that we do come across in the town's fire service. Because you don't have to talk about the particular incident, but you just have to know that there's people there that you can talk to. But everybody on that particular day seemed to be fine. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. You, you don't know. Sometimes people might be too proud to say it in a group of people, but that's why there's all these numbers that get sent out and individual text messages just to say, look, if you're not okay, don't have to tell us, but you can tell this person. It's all confidential and private, which is fantastic, it, I have to say. We'd have called then later on. So that kind of, you don't have too much time to kind of, I suppose, deal with one particular incident because you have to go again, which sometimes is better because it stops you from dwelling on things. People are in contact so quickly these days. You hear my friend's brother, eyewitness, devastating. And you're just kind of thinking, you're never going to get over that. This is a young man starting out in life. He just got married. You know, everything ahead of him. And yet something so sad has impacted on him massively. And, you know, people with young children who were there and had to shelter their child from what they saw was going to happen and did happen. So Monday afternoon, I'm down the town getting my lunch and everybody's asking me about it. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody knows already because you can imagine there's 40, 50, 60 people maybe that were witness to it who have then told their family, their friends. They're in our train station, so they're probably from our town. So a lot of people would have been affected by it pretty much straight away. But the first shop I actually went into was the pharmacy. I had to go in and pick up my prescription and... The girl I met in the pharmacy actually was witness. She was the first person I saw walk out of the train station. Yeah, yeah. So I was more asking her how she was, how she was okay. And she was she was upset when I saw her walk out of the train station, but she was doing okay. But I think what struck her more was the fact that we actually had an incident similar to this only a few months previously. And a lot of that person's friends were actually at the train station to witness this. So that was kind of more striking for me is that those people that had already been grieving for their friend have now witnessed what actually had probably happened to their friend. Your brain goes into overdrive then thinking, what are those people thinking? You know, if they hadn't witnessed that, could they have just put it behind them and dealt with it? And But now they have an image in their head almost of the friend that they buried. And then, of course, the other side of it is just who this person was and what their family must, you know, have felt when when they heard the news or how did they hear the news. The only thing that was actually on the casualty's person in her pocket was her ID. That was it, just the ID card. No wallet, no anything, you know. There was a watch and a wedding ring and the wedding ring was quite, that was quite sad because you, you think automatically it was like, okay, well, this person has a family. And that was one of the first things actually that we spotted when we came into the train station. But um, the only item that was on this person was just the ID card. So obviously they wanted to be known. This person probably knew what their fate was going to be. and But they still wanted 
their family to know or they wanted to be identified, which almost makes it a little bit more sad, I think, for me anyway. When we are satisfied of who the person is, the guards then call to the family. On this particular morning, there was no one at home. So then the next thing is to try and contact that person's next of kin, the deceased husband. What was in my mind that day? The news was at one o'clock and I had to find that man before one o'clock. In my mind, if he's not into social media, because you're thinking whoever that man is could be watching the news at one o'clock and he'll know. So we went to this man's place of work. We went in as discreet as we could, just shorts and as casual as we could. So we spoke with his supervisor, found out he had a very close friend working there. So we actually told him, he stayed in our room and we told the deceased husband what had happened. We did ask him to identify and he did confirm. When I'm finished with the confirmation of the identification, then you take the guard aside of the way and you try and then become a bit more helpful in relation to everything that needs to be done for him. This husband and wife, it was just the two of them in the house, a nice home and strange like bringing someone home to a house and it's just one left. I called into the neighbour to ask the neighbour to come in to be a bit of support for him. And I knew her. He wants somebody there. What I did do on the evening, I decided I'm going to go back up to the station to where it happened. Because I didn't want to be arriving at the station the following morning for the first time since it happened. My wife came up with me, so we stood where I stood, very visible as to where the event had taken place. I could actually see the stain in my golf coffee on the, on the platform. Fine dealing with it during the day and talking about it and actually being conscious part of me that actually copes, coping mechanism, that's all alive and awake. But then when you kind of go to sleep sometimes, I guess that probably goes to sleep and then this this kind of imbalance happens in your head where actually you're asleep, you're not coping with it well and you wake up and you have this anxiety kind of going, what's the matter? So flashbacks of stuff. You know, this poor individual is faceless to me. I don't, I don't, I don't know what she looks like. So I don't know. So how does somebody get to that? How does that poor individual end up here? What's that journey like? So it's just an anxiety around, you know, that somebody's daughter. I have a daughter, so it could be somebody's daughter. It could have been somebody. You know, where will we be in 40 years' time, 30 years' time? Where will they be in 30, 40 years' time? It's just overthinking things. Since that event on Monday, I haven't stayed downstairs on my own in the house in the, at evening time because I'm afraid of having the images in my head. It got to the point where I was out in the kitchen and it was dark outside. I had visions of the individual walking around the garden. That's how bad it got. It's a picture of that individual I see walking around the back garden there at night time. And I feel a bit threatened by them. I don't know why, because I know there's nothing out there. But it's just so firmly imprinted in my head. And that's why I'm not staying downstairs on my own at night time at the minute. You're listening to the documentary on one. If you've been affected by issues in this documentary, you may like to contact the Samaritans on free phone 116 123. That's 116 123. There's a very good friend of mine. He's a trained counsellor. So, yeah, I went and spoke to him afterwards. And he said from his concern about me was he wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to think of doing anything like that myself because he said there's people who see it happen and then some part of their 
sort of darker brain will turn around and go, oh, that's a good idea. But he said when he'd asked me, he said the tone of my voice told him immediately it would never be considered. I've only had one trigger since then. I'd actually gone to London on business and just talking about it with a friend of mine there, I literally was sitting in the pub bawling my eyes out because it just all came rushing back. And then when I went back to my hotel, I literally couldn't move for half an hour. I was sobbing so hard. Well, I remember my husband would be working away on his laptop and then all of a sudden I'd see his kind of eyes glaze over and and I'd, I'd ask him, are you are you getting images of, of what happened? And he said, yeah. And then he had to go and lie down on the sofa. And so about by the second or maybe by the third day, I was really starting to worry because I'd never seen him like that. And I thought, God, what if this, you know, this never goes away? Like, what if he constantly has flashbacks to it and... Will this change him as a person? And and I just didn't know what really to say to him to comfort him. It just felt like anything you would say would be the wrong thing, you know. On Friday, then I said to my wife, actually, do you know what? The images aren't quite as sharp anymore. They're beginning to soften a bit already. Over time, these things will probably go more and more into the back of the head, and the flashbacks won't be as frequent. And eventually, probably it. You hardly ever think of it, and then it only comes back at certain moments. This particular one I did with flashbacks, we're always going backwards on instance in the guards. Like, you never finish with it, really, for quite a long time. It's funny how it comes back when you least expect it. At the time, you're in autopilot, and you're just doing your job, and you're doing it as best you can. Then I do recall this particular one, there was one night where I just uh, woke up, and I was seeing things in me, nightmares and I to be honest with you I never really had them before it's very unusual to me for someone who's actually had I would say an awful lot of unusual and strange deaths maybe something triggered an instant something else a month or two later I don't know whether it was because of the accident or the pain in the shoulder and it could have been about both because if you weren't dreaming you were waking up with pain yeah you'd wake up at four o'clock in the morning You'd probably even wake up before that. You sleep for two hours, you'd wake up, you sleep for another two hours. People have come up to me and said, you know, are you okay? I've said it to people myself. The Samaritans were up during the week and they were handing out cards and talking to people. The following morning, a lady from the HSC had gotten in contact with me and they were asking my advice, what I thought. I says, well, I says, there must have been 100 people on that platform. But... How do you get it out to the people if anyone does need help? So the lady from HSC was fantastic. She went up and she put leaflets out and it wasn't long before I was hearing the feedback from what that lady was doing, reverberating through the town in the shops. Everyone was telling me about what the little thing that helps everyone start talking to each other about it. Tuesday night to Wednesday night, I did my day's work and, it, and I was struggling. As I was really, really struggling. My wife did get in touch with a psychologist and the psychologist said, look, this is natural for the first couple of days. It should peter out over over the course of maybe a week. And she did ring through to check that I was okay, to check that everything was going okay. And I suppose over time, and I suppose they do say time is a great healer, and in this case, it, it probably is. But now to look at it a week later, I've done a bit of reading on it. I was given a few materials just to read up, just to how to deal with these sort of situations. It has helped. 
yesterday on Saturday then, so which is uh, five days later, I went for a long cycle and for a swim. And yesterday, for the first time, I felt actually better within myself. I'm Gertie Corner, I have put in counselling services in the last few months. And I did receive phone calls after that. But I suppose you don't tell too many of your colleagues too much about it. I have a particular friend who is a counsellor and I dispense stuff off her. I think I got very good aftercare. The counselling was there, so I don't have any complaints about the way Irish Rail treated me up to now. So I'm starting to plan my future. You know, wanting to join a, a walking club, wanting to go out and meet people. Maybe I'll travel up the train, but uh, not for a long time, no. I don't hold any anger to that woman. I think she must have been in such a painful place. But I do know there's a lot of people who are very angry at her. My son was one of the people on that platform. And I, I was very angry about that. And I put on my private... Facebook account, I put the question out there, is it okay to call this person a f Because they put my kid into shock, as well as whoever many people on that platform that day. Is that okay? And basically what happened was I lost well, a whole bunch of quote-unquote friends on Facebook, and uh, I just sort of became a pariah in the town for, for saying that. I did hear about like people angry about it, but in my mind, my opinion is, and probably because I had a family member in this position, they don't know what to do. That's my opinion. Was the mind gone? I sometimes say to some people, maybe the eyes were gone. If me and you were standing on that platform, say on the same side as that woman, and we seen what she was about to do, wouldn't make a difference if you roared at her, look at the kids, look at the kids. She probably then wouldn't have heard you. Yeah, I was just told that your sister was killed today. I loved her dearly. For the last month, I spoke to her, and this gives me great consolation. Every single night, I spoke to her for about an hour. Sorry, correction. I listened to her for about an hour. And that's one thing I'd say to listeners. Don't you say monopolise by talking to them. Sit back and listen. Let them do all the talking. Some people think I'm very cruel to say so. But I believe the victims themselves are in agony. But they don't seem to realise they're throwing their problem right over and dividing it amongst all their family. The only comment I would pass to any poor misfortune who is suffering agony Stop momentarily and think of your parents, your brothers, sisters, you know, your nieces, nephews, all your friends. Think of the sadness you're going to bring to all of these people who all loved you and will be absolutely shattered by the news that you're gone. We're now three weeks after the event and a friend of mine has organized this community response coffee morning and I think it's just an open invitation for anyone who is affected by that and other events 
there will, will be some counselors and some Samaritans there, just available for people to talk to, I believe. I'm not sure whether there anyone will stand up and say a few words, perhaps. But my understanding is that it's kind of just an open uh, format and it'll develop in whichever way people want. So that's my understanding. I'm doing very well and the flashbacks from the events and so on, they're kind of softer and less frequent. But I nearly every day go to the station where it happened and it just brings back memories every time. The decision was made about not driving no more trains again. So I don't have to climb that mountain. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the future. I've been told before when I was younger I'd be a very, very close person. I wouldn't express myself very well. But um, I suppose this is probably as open as I've ever been. It was a very, very tragic event. It has impacted so many, many people. But for me, I'm talking more openly than I've ever spoken before. Which, unfortunately, it took an unfortunate set of circumstances to bring that about. And I know now, having witnessed what I witnessed, that keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. If you've been affected by the issues contained within this documentary, please contact The Samaritans on free phone 116 123 or email joe at samaritans.ie